Hear now the very words of God as they are given to us in the Gospel of Luke, reading from the fourth chapter, verses 31 through 37. And he went down to Capernaum, a city of Galilee, and he was teaching them on the Sabbath. And they were astonished at his teaching, for his word possessed authority. And in the synagogue, there was a man who had the spirit of an unclean demon. And he cried out with a loud voice, Ha! What have you to do with us, Jesus of Nazareth? Have you come to destroy us? I know who you are, the Holy One of God. But Jesus rebuked him, saying, Be silent and come out of him. And when the demon had thrown him down in their midst, he came out of him, having done him no harm. And they were all amazed and said to one another, What is this word? For with authority and power, he commands the unclean spirits and they come out. And reports about him went out into every place in the surrounding region. And may the Lord bless his reading, the reading of this, his word to our understanding this morning. Let's ask him for that illumination. Our dear Father, as we read these words, um, we imagine them, we visualize them in our minds, we process them intellectually, but give us a deeper understanding this morning. We pray that you would transport us so that we could actually, in, in the spirit, it, it'd be as if we were there in the midst of that synagogue and, and we saw the, the, the interaction and, and this admission or attestation, if you will, by this demon of who Jesus is and Help us to understand that actually he's saying something that most of the Christian church today has forgotten. That you indeed are the Holy One of God. May we worship you as such. May we know you as such. May we glorify you as such. And it is in your holy name that we pray. Amen. Well, as you... Um, found out earlier, this is indeed Reformation Sunday. And you know something? Um, this is only the second time in all the years that I've been preaching that Reformation Day, October 31st, has fallen on Reformation Sunday. So I decided this morning that I would preach a bona fide Reformation sermon. In other words, a sermon that was the kind of sermon that the reformers would preach. And for that reason, it's not going to be about the Reformation at all. Um, because I cannot imagine the reformers, whether it be Luther or Calvin or any of the rest of them, actually preaching a sermon on the Reformation. Their focus was entirely on Christ and, and justification and, and, and seeing the, the very truths of Scripture. And so that's what I'm going to do this morning, as I'm going to focus on Christ and the truth of Scripture. Now, you can either write that up to me being an Uber reformed kind of preacher, or you can write it up to the fact that I forgot that this was Reformation Sunday until I'd already written the sermon. Both of those would probably be, at least to a degree, true. But there is one connection that we that we have with the Reformation this morning. And 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 several months ago, or a month or so ago, I preached a sermon called 
uh, uh, conquering Anfeshtung. Remember that word that Luther coined because he had such an ongoing struggle with the devil and with the forces of evil. Well, we're going to see that Jesus has the same kind of a situation far more than Luther ever did. And, and just in this book of Luke so, Luke so far, we can see this uh, unfolding. First of all, Jesus met the devil in the desert and was tempted by him. And then Luke fast forwards us to put us in Nazareth where he shares the fact with his hometown folks that he's the Messiah of God. And then they try to kill him. And now he's going to face a demon from hell. So it is obvious that the forces of evil are aligning themselves against the ministry of Christ. But as we're going to see this morning, there's an amazing affirmation or proclamation or statement that we are going to hear from the the depths of evil about who Jesus actually is and something we really need to pay attention to. Now, Luke is really, Luke is such an intelligent writer. He, he is really tying his book together. And so there are themes that he has been developing all the way through his book. And one of those is the, call it the proclamation. I, I use the word attestation to attest that Jesus is indeed the son of God, the Messiah, uh, the, the one that has long been awaited. And over and over again, all the way through this book, he has been making that attestation through the most interesting beings, really almost every kind of being you can think of. First of all, he made it to Theophilus when he explained why he was writing this letter. And then the angels, Gabriel to Zechariah and Maria, and, I mean, to Mary, Zechariah and Mary. And then to the, when the Shekinah of God showed down around the, um, uh, the shepherds and the heavenly host came to attest that Jesus was indeed the Son of God. Well, we have it from priests. I mean, Zechariah was a priest and he made that attestation. We have it from mothers. Both Mary and Elizabeth made that attestation. Even from the unborn, John the Baptist in the womb. It leaps when he's in the presence of Jesus. We have seen the shepherds out in the field on one end of the spectrum. On the other end was Zechariah the priest. Then we saw the Messianic community with Simeon and Anna in the temple. And then we saw the Trinity itself, God himself, affirm that Jesus is the Christ. At the baptism, the Holy Spirit descended on him like a dove. And then the Father spoke from heaven, this is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. And just a couple of weeks ago, Jesus, after reading Isaiah 61, makes the statement on this day, this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. In other words, I am the Messiah. And so we have seen this continue all the way through the book. We even saw a backhanded kind of attestation coming from the devil himself because he attacked Jesus in trying to corrupt him as the Messiah in those desert temptations. And you don't attack somebody in that way without knowing that he is the Messiah. You're trying to corrupt him in that sense. And so in this morning's message, we are going to see yet another attestation, this time from, again, the forces of evil, as a demon tells us who Jesus actually is. And we're going to see the reaction to that. Now, 
Luke has been taking us through that kind of a thing, but he's also been telling us who Jesus is in, in, in this opening part of his book. First of all, who he's not. Remember, in the desert, that's what the devil was trying to do, was to corrupt Jesus into being a Messiah who did not go to the cross. Giving him other other ways that he could accomplish his purpose without going to the cross. And we're going to see this morning, brothers and sisters, that the cross is absolutely central to everything that uh, that Jesus is going to do. You simply cannot remove this uh, sacrificial substitutionary atonement of Jesus from redemption. It just simply doesn't work. So we're going to see how important that is. But then we saw Jesus quoting from Isaiah 61, fast-forwarding to the synagogue in Nazareth, and he explained the kind of Messiah that he actually was. I, I, the Spirit of God is upon me. I have been anointed to preach the good news to the poor and to set the captives free, to open their eyes and to liberate them from their oppressors. Well, this morning we are going to see him do that when he casts a demon out of a demon-possessed man. So this is just this is just flowing as Luke just continues to build these things. We're going to see him actually add some new themes this morning as we continue through our text. So with that said, let's jump into it. We have quite a bit of it, so let's get started in the 31st verse. And he went down to Capernaum, a city of Galilee. Now, when we left the narrative, Jesus was in Nazareth, remember? And after he, he told them that I'm not even going to work a miracle here because God has already passed judgment upon you. And they got so furious at him that they tried to kill him. And, and, and I told you that, that we're not exactly sure where the cliffs that they tried to push him off of, where they were. But there are some cliffs um, uh, sort of facing the Jezreel Valley to the south. And that looks like where it might have been. Well, regardless, Jesus miraculously walks through their midst. And if you were to look at a map, the Jezreel Valley goes east to west right across the top of Samaria. And, and he would just simply have to walk down that valley through a couple of of mountains, and he is right there at the northwestern tip of the Sea of Galilee, which is where Capernaum is. Now, Luke tells us he walked down to Capernaum because there's a drop in elevation. Uh, the Sea of Galilee is 600 feet below sea level, so that's why he went down. And for the benefit of his Gentile readers, he tells them that it is a city in Galilee. Of course, we know that Capernaum has become the headquarters out of which Jesus will work in his Galilean ministry. Well, we go on and read that he was teaching them on the Sabbath. We established, when we talked about Nazareth, that this was Jesus' modus operandi. This is the way he taught. As he traveled around to the villages and towns of, uh, of Galilee, the first place he would go, Paul would follow suit, would be to the synagogue on the Sabbath. Because he'd have everyone gathered together and, and they're studying the word. And so it was a perfect place for him to begin to reveal and to proclaim the message of the kingdom of heaven. So he is there on the Sabbath. By the way, this is another one of Luke's themes. He's just starting it. He's talking about all the things that Jesus did on the Sabbath and 
how one of his primary things was the reform of the Sabbath, what it had been made by the Pharisees, very legalistic. He, he wanted it to be restored as a time of glorious worship to the Lord our God. And so uh, um, that's going to be another one of his themes. But there's something that I want you to see here. I don't want you to miss this. This will become important later on. Notice that he was teaching them on the Sabbath. Sabbath is plural. But, and I'm not going to tell you technically why this is. Just kind of take it at face value. It, there's an ongoingness to that word. So later on, when we see this demon-possessed man or the demon himself interrupt Jesus, the idea is that he interrupted him as he was teaching the word. There's an ongoingness to it that is established there um, that that he he is doing. So we're going to see um, this interruption. Now, let's go on to the the next verse and see that. Um, I'm sorry. And they were astonished at his teaching for his word possessed authority. Unfortunately, Capernaum is not going to be much different than um, Nazareth. Jesus wouldn't work any miracles in Nazareth because of their unbelief. He's going to work a ton of miracles in Capernaum. But that doesn't mean that they're actually going to believe. In fact, later on, Jesus is going to pronounce a very severe curse on Capernaum. He's going to say this in the 10th chapter. And you, Capernaum, will be ex- will you be exalted to heaven No, you shall be brought down to Hades. In other words, because so many miracles had been been worked there, um, their their punishment or their judgment is going to be even more severe because even with all those miracles, they didn't believe. And and that's significant because miracles do not lend or, or lead necessarily to belief. But what is important in what they say there is the beginning of another of Luke's themes. And that is the authority that Jesus has. We're going to see it later expressed towards the end of this. But Jesus has authority here. We are going to see over the demonic world something that none of us should ever forget. That Jesus exercises power and authority over the forces of evil. Just like he has authority over the winds and the waves. Just as he has authority when he preaches the word. So the authority of Jesus as the Messiah is something that Luke is going to make certain certain that we understand. And, and, and he's not teaching the way that the scribes were. Matthew makes a point of this in his gospel when Jesus finished these sayings. The crowds were astonished at his teaching. For he was teaching them as one who had authority and not as their scribes. In the after church, I'm going to spend a little bit of time of talking about what was so different in the teaching of Jesus that that gave him that authority and what was so different between him and the scribes who were the ones who were teaching in that day. We'll talk about that a little bit later. But for now, just recognize that it is with authority that Jesus is acting and we are about to see not only his authority in the way he preaches but his authority over the demonic world and the two are going to be uh, connected together because it is actually going to be his authoritative preaching that is going to wake this demon up. So let's begin to look at that um, 
the, the exorcism that Jesus works here, starting in the 33rd verse. And in the synagogue, there was a man who had the spirit of an unclean demon. Um, so there's a man there in the synagogue who is demon-possessed. Now, I'm going to kind of try to analyze this. Because when you talk about demon possession, the, the, the Greek word actually means to be indwelt. Uh, uh, it, it, it's, it's not something that's just on the surface that you're being, that you apparently are being guided, directed, or forced, or tempted into something. It, it actually speaks of something that is, is, is far more significant or, or far more um, uh, 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 intense than that. So whenever you're trying to describe something like this, it's a little difficult. Um, well, first of all, we're going to divide it. I'm going to talk about the man first, and, and then I'm going to talk about the demon. Uh, I'm reminded of C.S. Lewis's uh, Chronicles of Narnia. If you're familiar with the various books that he wrote, uh, one of them was called The Horse and His Boy. And, and you know, that kind of backwards. You, normally we talk about the boy and his horse. But it's sort of a play on, well, who's in control? Because the horse happened to be a war horse, a talking horse from Narnia, and the boy was an urchin. And if you know the story, you know that that kind of switches towards the end because the boy turns out to be a prince, did, just didn't know it. But nonetheless, what I, I think that what we're looking at here is, are we talking about the man and his demon? Or are we talking about the demon and his man? Uh, I, I kind of think it's the latter, that the man is under the control of this almost parasitical type of relationship. So let's take a look at the man and, and let's see if we can understand what it means to be indwelt by a, a demon. First of all, let me explain what it doesn't mean. Uh, okay, sometimes that's very helpful is to talk about what it is not. And pretty much universally, skeptical uh, um, scholarship, uh, those who don't believe in anything supernatural, um, they pretty much kind of put this into two categories. One is that poor Dr. Luke, he is just so superstitious and ancient that he thinks that all sickness comes from demon possession. That was a very superstitious way to look at things. Well, I guess they forget that Luke is a physician. He's extremely intelligent. He writes in a very elevated Greek. And that just simply isn't the case. Because if you look down in the fourth chapter later on, we're going to see people lining up at Peter's house to get say, I mean, to get healed. Some of them are being healed from infirmities while others are being healed from demons. So Luke himself makes the distinction between the two. So that simply is not the case. This is not some ancient superstitious way of describing illnesses. And the second is very similar to it because they say that this is an ancient superstitious way of defining insanity. Now, we do know, especially like with someone like Mary Magdalene, that to be possessed by demons and to be insane are very closely associated. But not completely, because both the demons and the people who are possessed by these demons in the New Testament, both of them are, are, are rational. 
you can have conversations with them. You can talk with them um, as, as Jesus is about to do with this one. Or think about the, um, the, the Gadarene demoniacs after Jesus throws the demon, the legion demons out of that man. Well, this is what we read. He says, the demon-possessed man, the one who had had the legion, was sitting there clothed and in his right mind. So in other words, when the demon is cast out, there's no insanity. So you couldn't be using that just to express insanity. Now, that's not what we're talking about here. When we talk about demon possession and the way that it's presented to us here, we are talking about a possession or an indwelling by a separate evil, malicious being. Now, I cannot explain it to you entirely because I am a creature of earth. I am finite. I am mortal. And I live in a physical world. And this is a spiritual phenomenon. So we can't completely describe it. I mean, what is it? What's the relationship? How can a spirit of one being indwell another being in this way? But I can tell you this, that Jesus described it kind of like being in a house. Remember he talked about the man who had a demon cast out and then he cleaned up the house and swept it and put everything in order and left the front door open and the demon came back with all of his buddies, right? Well, it's, it's kind of like that. It's a parasitical situation where the demon is actually possessing. So it, it is far more than just an influence. So that's the situation in the man. Well, what about the demon? Well, Luke tells us that that he was possessed or that he had the spirit of an unclean demon. So what exactly does that mean? Does that mean that there are clean demons? That that this one is distinguished from another kind of demons? No, of course, that's ridiculous. All demons are unclean spirits. But what, what I do think it, it kind of insinuates, and I don't want to put too much importance on this, it does kind of insinuate that there are different kinds of demons. Do you remember when Jesus was up on the Mount of Transfiguration and he came back down and the disciples who were not with him were trying to cast a demon out of a man's son and they couldn't do it? And then later on, they asked Jesus, well, how come we couldn't throw that demon out? And Jesus said, this kind of demon must be thrown out with prayer. So he he establishes that there are different kinds of demons, perhaps some more tenacious than others. But but regardless, we, we, we see that this particular unclean, nefarious, evil, and wicked spirit had hijacked or kidnapped or moved into or indwelt or possessed this man. So, in other words, in answer to the question, who's in charge here? Well, I think it's the demon. I think that the demon has control. And he doesn't always manifest himself, as I'll say in just a moment. But the very fact that as Jesus is preaching the word... All of a sudden, this demon cries out with a loud voice, tells me that he's the one in control. Because, yes, it's the man's voice, it's his breath, it's his vocal cords, but he is under the, the, the influence of this demon. And the fact that he cries out that way, I think, is hugely significant. 
Now, one thing that I'm, I'm, I'm not going to do now, I don't have time to trace the history of demonology to any degree to answer the questions, where do demons come from? And, and, and I'll give it a little bit more uh, time in the after church, but l- let me at least just express it this way. We know that Satan was an angel, and we know this from Isaiah, who fell from grace. We know from Revelation 12 that when he fell, he swept with his tail. A third of the stars fell from the sky. That's probably the demons that followed him in his rebellion. So a third of all the angels of heaven were part of that rebellion and fell. So how many does that make? Remembering that Satan himself, we're talking about evil now, Satan himself is not omnipresent. So you can't all say at the same time, the devil made me do it because he's not every place at the same time. However, he has a massive amount of help. Now, I can't tell you how many a third of the angels of heaven are, but I can tell you this, that in the fifth chapter of Revelation, When John sees the church triumphant gathered around the throne of God, he says that they are encircled by myriad upon myriad of angels. 10,000 times 10,000. That's an idiom. And that means an innumerable throng. You can't count them. You can't see the end of them. So there's the two-thirds is an uncountable number. So that means that the one-third, there's a whole bunch This world is swirling with spiritual warfare that is put on by the minions of the devil with a unified intent, which is to thwart the work of the kingdom of heaven and oppose Christ and elevate themselves as the God of this world. So um, there's a whole bunch of demons. And I, I can't pull this from the text, but I can tell you more than likely, this demon is not the only demon in the room um, because he's going to use the plural to refer to himself in a moment. Well, anyway, he cries out with a loud voice. And this is what he said. Let me, let me find it again. And he cried out with a loud voice. Ha! <laughs> Okay, that's an unusual word. That you, you're not going to find that word of in any place in the New Testament. That's the only place that that it is. Now, I, I, before we actually look at, at that word, um, I, I want to analyze the reason for the word. Why did this devil, this demon, all of a sudden in the middle of the synagogue, just cry out? Well. Here's my my theory, and it is a theory. Uh, I believe it was because of Jesus' preaching, because of the authoritative preaching of Jesus. Now, we are not told that people brought a demon-possessed man into the synagogue. We are not told that someone who was demon-possessed wandered into the back of the room. We are given the impression by the text that the man is just sitting there perfectly okay, perfectly normal, and listening like everyone else in the synagogue, and all of a sudden he just yells, ha! So, I think it's because Jesus, as the authoritative preacher of the word, struck a nerve. John MacArthur postulates or guesses, again, this is completely conjecture, 
but but it's it's it could easily be that Jesus is preaching on the same passage here in Capernaum that he was preaching on back in Nazareth. Remember Isaiah sixty one. And Isaiah 61 talks about setting the captives free and destroying the oppressors, okay? To preach liberty to those who are oppressed. That means I'm going to get rid of the oppressors. Well, here you have that exact situation before you. And, and so it could be, but you know, let me tell you, whether or not he actually was teaching that, if we're reading through Luke, that's Clearly in our minds, if we have read through this fourth chapter, well, we just read that. I know it's been a couple of weeks for us, but we would have just read it that Jesus has the power of God upon him, that he was uh, ordained to preach to the poor, that he is opening the eyes of the blind, that he is there to set the captives free and declare all debts wiped out. That's what the Messiah is there to do. And when he gets to the point of 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 of, of getting rid of those oppressors. This demon just kind of gives himself away, and he cries out, ha. Now, the best way I can describe that word is that it is surprised indignation. It is an angry, hateful um, kind of reaction that is surprised, but at the same time laced with fear and dread. Okay, kind of a complicated word, but that's kind of what it means. I'm going to show my age here by, you know, I have sort of an overactive imagination. And the way that I envision this word being used is one of those old westerns, you know, the kind that used to be on TV, you know, every Saturday. And the Roy Rogers or the Tom Mix character. And in those, there was always a damsel in distress, right? There was always some poor damsel getting tied to the railroad tracks by the evil guy. Well, the way I envision this is they're out in the desert and there's a bunch of outlaws that are around a fire and they're passing the bottle around. They're really slimy and evil and wicked because they have kidnapped the damsel in distress. And so the damsel in distress is right over here, sort of at the edge of the light. You know, of course, she's got that rope wrapped all the way around her and she is trembling because of the horrible, wicked things that these guys are saying they're going to do to her. And then all of a sudden, out of the darkness, steps the Lone Ranger, okay? And again, I'm dating myself here. But the Lone Ranger steps out and he's got those two silver pistols out, right? And they're cocked and they're loaded. And so the reaction of those outlaws could be something like, ha, surprised indignation, anger and hatred, but at the same time staring at those barrels knowing that they're about to flame and when they're done, their gig is up. That's exactly the kind of a, of a reaction I believe this demon is having as Jesus, the Holy One of God, comes into that synagogue and he begins to teach about setting the captives free. And there's a man that is under the influence of an oppressor right there in the midst. He can't help himself. He cries out, ha. Well, he goes on and he says, what have you to do with us, Jesus of Nazareth? And then he says, did you come to destroy us? And then he says, I know who you are. You're the Holy One of God. Now, before I go on, before I take that apart, let me make a little bit of a disclaimer. You, you know that I'm very strict about exposition of Scripture. And I like to exegete the words. In other words, I like to tell you what the word means. 
in, in the best that I can. And whenever I stray from that, even a little, I want to make sure that you know that I'm doing it. So I'm stepping out of that. I, I am pressing the text, but I'm not pressing the text with I'm saying that this is what the Holy Spirit was saying to Luke, that was saying to us, that, that he was saying what I'm about to tell you. I'm telling you that it is a biblical principle, and this situation makes an association in my mind. Okay? Do you, you, do you understand the difference? Um, very important as far as interpretation of Scripture is concerned. But I am making a scriptural, biblical association in what I see here. Okay? Now, the demon, first of all, he says... What have we to do with you, Jesus of Nazareth? And first of all, that what do you, what, what do we have to do with you? In the Greek, th- that is literally what to us and you. And basically, what the demon is saying is is what is there between us? I mean, what's the problem? What's the situation? Why are you here and saying you're going to destroy me and throw me out? Because we've always gotten along together. I've been here all along. And I have a symbiotic relationship with this man. So can't we coexist? Can't we both be in the same place at the same time? Jesus of Nazareth, we don't have to fight and, and, and therein you see one of the greatest heresies and problems within Christendom, both ancient and modern. And, and, and that is to look at Jesus as only Jesus of Nazareth. Now, as I said, more than likely, Luke is just identifying Jesus as Jesus of Nazareth. Jesus also identifies himself as that. But we have just been in Nazareth. And we have just seen his own people try to kill him when he claims to be the supernatural son of God. And so what the demon would love all of us to think about Jesus the Christ is that he is nothing more than a man. That all he is is a good man with a great ethical system who taught us how to live and told us that love wins. That love is the most important thing that we need to know. And so forget about the supernatural. Forget about the cross. Forget about all of that. He was just a great teacher, a great prophet, and a great man. You see, the devil has no problem getting along with that Jesus. What is there between us? Uh, We don't have to have a fight. We don't have to have an argument. We don't have to be at odds with each other. Oh, 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 yes, you do. Because that's not the kind of Jesus that Jesus is. That is not the way that he came. In other words, Jesus came to set the captives free, to destroy the jailer, to destroy the oppressor. And so, therefore, there is no um, coexistence that is possible between the two of them. Jeremiah tells us this about the heart that Jesus came to save. He says that, no, I'm sorry, that comes later. Jeremiah tells us that, that it is a great danger when we begin to say that there's peace when there is no peace. Just before the exile, we, you know, the Lord said to Jeremiah, they have healed the wound of my people lightly saying, peace, peace. But there is no peace. Brothers and sisters, get it straight. Jesus did not come to make peace with evil. He did not come to allow evil to infiltrate his church in any way, form or fashion and just simply say, hey, we need to all be together. We need to be united Jesus came to destroy evil. That's why he said, 
clearly in Matthew, do not think that I have come to bring peace to the earth. I have not come to bring peace, but a sword. For I have come to set a man against his father and a daughter against her mother and daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law. And a person's enemies will be those in his own household. Now, he's not talking about I'm going to create friction within the body of Christ. But what he is saying is I did not come to coexist with evil. Period. And so, therefore, that idea of Jesus is simply not going to work. Well, then the devil goes on and he identifies Jesus not as Jesus of Nazareth, but he says, I know who you are. Almost like it's, it slips out. Almost as if he makes a statement that he did not want to make. I know who you are. You're the Holy One. You're the Holy One of God. Now, brothers and sisters, there is a profound, important principle here. That has been lost in modern Christendom. We we see Jesus as the lover of humanity. We see him as merciful. We see him as kind. We see him as compassionate. We see him in all the ways that he is. And that is oh so important. But he is also the Holy One of God. you, You know, people like to say, well, no, the God of the Old Testament was a God of wrath and Jesus is a God of love. No, that's not it. Jesus is God. There's only one God. He's always been the same God throughout all of eternity. And if he hated sin and evil in the Old Testament, he hates it now. Jesus is the Holy One of God. Now, it is far beyond the the scope of this sermon to... Be able to describe what the holiness of God is. I I preached a little mini-series on it. Can you believe that was almost a year ago? It was during Christmas of last year. But preached a, 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 a series of sermons on the holiness of God. But brothers and sisters, when we talk about the holiness of God, we talk about a being who is perfect in his morality, in his holiness. He is set apart. He is higher than we are. He cannot bear to look upon iniquity. So let me give you two principles here. I'm going to bring them back up later on. First of all, God is holy, folks. And if God is holy and Jesus is God, Jesus is holy. And the second principle, holiness and evil cannot coexist. You cannot have both the holiness of God and the evil of this world in the same place at the same time. Why? And the devil knows this or the demon knows this. The demon understands because, you know what he said? Did you come to destroy us? The demon understands that when holiness comes face to face with evil, evil is destroyed. And he knows that he's evil. So he knows that his time is up. That's the reason for the ha. That's the reason for the surprised indignation because I am about to be destroyed by the Holy One of Israel. You see that's the reason for his great fear. The reason for his great fear is because Jesus has not just come to bring the love and the compassion of heaven. Let me put it this way. When Jesus first came, 
He came preaching a message. Repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Okay? That was John the Baptist's message. That was Jesus' message. Repent for the kingdom of heaven is upon you. Now, there's two aspects of that. As far as we are concerned, that's the best news any of us have ever heard. Because the Holy One of God has come down to give his life as an atonement for sins so that we might be forgiven from those sins, to live a perfect life so that we might stand before God with his righteousness and not our own. That is the greatest news that anyone has ever heard. But it's not good news for the demons. Because he's throwing down the gauntlet here, brothers and sisters. And he's saying in so many words, game on. Now, the holiness of God has come into this dark world. And your control, your power, your ability to oppress is coming to an end. Because the Holy One of God is here. And I am here to destroy you. And to take your... your your control of this world away. Well, anyway, that's what the devil or the demon says to Jesus. Now, let's see what Jesus says to the demon. Ha, what have you to do with us? Jesus of Nazareth, have you come to destroy us? I know who you are, the Holy One of God. But Jesus rebuked him and said, be silent. That that word rebuke is a strong word, okay? Jesus did quite a bit of rebuking uh, during his ministry. Uh, He would rebuke demons. Sometimes he would cast them out just by rebuking them. He would rebuke the wind and the waves to to make them calm. He he rebuked Peter. But, But here he uses that word... And then he says, be silent. So the rebuke carries in with it the demand to be silent. So why, why, why did Jesus tell this demon to be quiet? Well, there, there's two reasons, I think. First of all, he's been preaching the word. Remember that ongoingness? He's in the middle of preaching the word of God and a demon interrupts him. How dare you? How dare you raise your voice when the Power and the word of God is being authoritatively preached. Okay? Now, that doesn't mean you can't say amen or, you know, or hallelujah. That's not what it means. That means that he's creating a, a complete, he's taking away from that word of God. And so therefore Jesus rebukes him for that. But you know why I really think he rebukes him? You know what I think the primary reason is? Remember, I I told about the attestation all the way through Luke's gospel. And here we are. And a demon says something about Jesus that the, the church has forgotten. He explains, you are the Holy One of God. We, as the demons of this world, know who you are. And Jesus says, I don't need that coming from your filthy, defiled lips. I don't need you to be the attestation of my holiness and my glory. So shut up. I don't need to hear that from you. I want it to be heard from the prophets. I want it to be heard from my own mouth and my disciples and those who share the gospel. I don't want the demons of hell telling people that I'm the Holy One of God. So he tells them to shut up. And then he simply says, come out. Come out of him. Wait a minute, that that doesn't jive with the movie versions, does it? You know? I mean, where are the incantations? Where are the, the smoke? Where's the mirrors? Where's the, the, the time? Where's all the props? Where's all the strutting around on stage? Where's all the things that go with it? Jesus just simply says, 
come out of him. And the demon has to comply because Jesus wields the authority. And that is what we're about to see. He simply says, come out of him. And when the demon had thrown him down in their midst, he came out of him, having done him no harm. First of all, that's a testimony that when a demon is thrown out, that the man in this case returns to normal. But not without what appears to be sort of like a last kick. You know what I mean? It's like, I'm, I'm not just going to leave. I'm not just going to depart. I'm going to uh, give you a parting salvo. But you know what it could also be? It could also be that this, the, the demon's not going to leave that man on his own. That he's actually in the hands of the Holy Spirit of God. And it's God who has taken that demon by the tail and cast him out of that man. And the way I see that, that's like an alligator being swept down the, the uh, Mississippi River freshwater alligator into the Gulf of Mexico. And all of a sudden finds himself in that salt water and just begins to thrash and go into spasms. Just before he dies, before he's destroyed. And that's the point. That which is evil cannot be in the grasp of that which is holy and coexists. There is absolutely no way. Well, anyway, all of a sudden the man is okay and looking in verse 36, and they were all amazed and said to one another, what is this word for with authority and power he commands the unclean spirits and they come out. Don't miss that. Luke is summarizing this for us. First thing he says, what is this word? What is this word that was spoken? What is this word that authoritatively was being preached that woke this demon up? What is this word that is all that it takes to deal with evil? It is the word of God. And it is a word that is not just spoken, brothers and sisters. It is spoken with authority. You see, Jesus says, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. All authority, the kind of authority that we are seeing wielded by Jesus is only the authority that comes from God. It is given. It is not earned or or, or taken or, or captured. It is something that God gives. And it is in that authority, brothers and sisters, in that authority alone that we have power. Because it is the authoritative power of God that throws that demon out. Brothers and sisters, that's what Paul says. When Paul talks about this demonology, uh, our fight, the way that we are constantly involved with this in the book of Ephesians, you know this well. In the 10th verse, he says, finally, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. Brothers and sisters, you're not strong enough for even the weakest demon. You, you, you're toast. You're putty in their hands. You're going to get chewed up and spit out. These are, are, are angels and, 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 and evil angels, but they have power beyond what any of us can understand. So your power to, to stand against the forces of evil in this world do not reside in yourself. They reside in God. And that's why Paul went on to say, put on the whole armor of God. That you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the powers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil. In other words, you need the power of God or else if you don't have that power of God, 
You can't make the command. You see, do you notice the progression? The word that has the authority, that wields the power, that means that the word is not just a word. The word is a command. The devil cannot do anything else but come out. So make sure, brothers and sisters, that you don't issue the command without the power and authority. We have a little story about that in the 19th chapter of Acts, right? The sons of Sceva or Seva. Remember that? They're trying to throw out a demon and they didn't have any power and authority. Remember what the demon said? Jesus, I know. Paul, I recognize. Who are you? So he attacks them and tears them to pieces and rips their clothes off. You, you can't make the command, folks, unless you have the power. And you're not going to have the power unless you have the authority. And the only one that has the authority is Jesus and the ones he gives them to, which were his apostles at the time that they were needed in the early church. Well, anyway, and in the last verse, we, we hear that, and you can understand why, his fame just begins to spread. And reports about him went out into every place in the surrounding region. And actually, this begins to work against the gospel. Because everywhere Jesus went, they, they're just interested in one thing. I, I just want to see a miracle. I want to see you throw a demon out. I want to see you heal somebody. And, and they began to be focused on nothing else but the, the miracles and, and, and not listening to the word that Jesus was bringing. And so therefore, so many of the people, even though they had seen so many signs and wonders, as John says in the 12th chapter, they, they still didn't believe. That is the great tragedy. But it is a testimony that, no, you don't, uh, you, you, you don't come to an understanding through miracles. Well, brothers and sisters, I want to take a look, and friends, because this is for believers and non-believers as well, what, what I'm about to say and where I'm going to go with this. Um, there is something that the demons of hell don't want you to know. There is something that they don't want you to know if you're an unbeliever, and they don't want you to have in your consciousness and therefore in your life if you're a believer. First of all, C.S. Lewis said in his great book, the, or his fun book, if you will, the screw tape letters dealing with this. He said, you know something, when you're talking about demons and evil and the devil, there's, there's a road that's kind of narrow with a ditch on either side. You don't want to fall into either ditch. One, you don't want to be unwise and just ignore them and act like they don't exist and act like you don't have an enemy that 24-7, 365 days a year is attacking you, trying to seduce you, trying to lead you down the wrong path. If you, if, if, if you don't recognize that, then you're just a sitting target. But by the same token, don't focus on the, the evil only. But because, listen, you're, you, you follow the Lord has all power and authority. And, and, and he's over already, already overcome. We know the way this ends. So don't give them undue importance, but then don't ignore them at the same time. And with that said, brothers and sisters, I, 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 I want to talk about the very thing that comes out here that the demons of hell do not want you to know. And they have been so successful, actually, in blocking this from the consciousness of Christians and from unbelievers and from the church in general. 
And that is, it's not rocket science, it's not difficult, but it is profound. And that is that God is holy. And because God is holy and Jesus is God, Jesus is holy. And if you're holy, it means that you cannot abide evil or, or sin. What it means, and I know this runs against so many people's understanding of who Jesus is. What it means is that Jesus is just as wrathful in his divinity against our sins as God the Father is. And yes, he's Savior. And yes, he's merciful. And yes, he is loving. And yes, he is kind. And yes, he is compassionate. And yes, he's forgiving. And all of those things that mean so much to us. But he also is holy. And it's almost like the demons have said, okay, I, I, I can't. I, I can't do away, especially here in the West. I can't do away with the fact that Jesus is love. Okay, so I'm just going to give them that. I mean, these crazy evangelists are on every corner telling people that God loves them. So I'm just going to allow that to stand. And if you think about it, every cult, every apostate group, every false teacher out there today are unified in one aspect of their Message, and that is that God is love and Jesus is love. Oh, they'll teach that all day long. But the one thing that the devil doesn't want you to know and the demons don't want you to know and not live your life accordingly is that not only is he loving, but he is also holy. He's the holy one of God. And holiness and evil cannot occupy the same space. They cannot coexist. Now, I want to share something with you about the dilemma that we all find ourselves in. And I'm going to do it by asking a question and answering that question first that you're going to think that is off topic, but it's not. Because it's going to answer the question and where I want to lead this conversation now. And the question is simply this, is it possible for a Christian to be demon-possessed? I mean, that comes up quite a bit, doesn't it? Is it possible for, you know, my Christian brother or my Christian sister to be demon-possessed because they certainly are acting like it? Well, I know that there are plenty of people who say, yeah, that's possible, yeah. Yeah, you know, the demon can possess us, but I would like to point out that no, it's not possible. No, you, you, you can't have that which is holy and that which is is evil in the same place at the same time. Now, when you're an unbeliever, yes, you are dead in your trespasses and sins. And Jeremiah has a very poignant thing to say about you. Since the heart is deceitful above all things and desperately sick, who can understand it? That is the nature of your heart. But when you are born again, Jesus comes into your life and takes the heart of stone out and puts a heart of flesh incapable of loving God. It is a place that is worthy, a worthy vessel, a worthy receptacle for the Holy Spirit of God. You cannot have the perfect holiness of God and evil in that place at the same time. There is no way, there is no possibility that you are ever going to stand in the presence of a holy God other than to have your heart redeemed by the Holy Spirit, regenerated in that sense. But if that is true, 
then there is a crucial principle and truth that we need to know. Listen to me, please. This is not readily apparent. There is a crucial understanding that we have to have, and it is something that is being attacked daily in our culture. It is being attacked from within the church in modern Christendom, and that is the fact that we're still sinful. I still have my flesh. I'm I'm redeemed. I, I know I'm born again. My heart's changed, but guess what? Nobody told my body. My flesh just keeps on wanting to sin constantly all the time. It's in ground in my nature. So wait a minute. What did I just say? I just said that it is impossible for that which is holy to coexist with that which is evil. And in my flesh, I am evil. So I am condemned. I have a terrible dilemma. A dilemma out of which there is only one path, one way. Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. There is a narrow gate and a hard path. And this is the only way. And what Jesus is expressing to us is that there is no other way for you to be in the presence of a holy God other than the sacrificial, substitutional atonement. Sacrificial, substitutional atonement. That means... That Jesus is the Lamb of God. And he went to the cross as a substitutionary sacrifice for me. I should have been there on that cross. It should have been the wrath of God that poured down upon me. But Jesus did it in my stead. Now, what you're having is all across progressive, modern, liberal theology saying, well, you're just accusing God of being a child abuser to kill his own son. Well, the only other way that we are ever going to stand in the presence of God, brothers and sisters, is if God killed his own son. And don't think that the son wasn't privy to it because he was a voluntary sacrifice. Brothers and sisters, here's the most important thing. And if we forget it, we don't realize the way and the reason that we can claim to be saved and stand in the presence of God. It is because our sins were accepted by a perfect sacrifice. Jesus went to the cross without one single blemish against his own righteousness. He placed himself under the law so that he could live a perfect life so that when he hung on that cross he was the perfect sacrifice for my sins. God placed my sins upon him at that time and he poured his wrath out upon those so those sins were redeemed. They were propitiated. They were paid for. That's what an atonement means. And there is no way that I am ever going to stand in the presence of God without that but that's not enough. You do understand that, don't you? It's not enough. I have been redeemed. My sins have been forgiven, but I keep on sinning. I'm still a sinful individual. How am I ever going to have relationship with God? 
And I'll tell you why. Because of the sacrificial, substitutional atonement of Jesus. Because when he hung on that cross, he hung on that cross as a perfect sacrifice. He never sinned. And so therefore, when he goes into the grave and God raised him on the third day, it was to show that he was everything he said he was. He did everything he said he came to do. And God accepted his sacrifice on my behalf. And his righteousness is attributed to me. I am indwelt with his righteousness, not my own. Now, this is a tie-in with Reformation Sunday. Luther is the one that said this is an alien righteousness. It is not mine. I didn't earn it. I have no merit. I have no capability of attaining this righteousness. Jesus gives me the righteousness so that when God looks at me right now, he doesn't see my sin. He sees the blood of his son, Jesus Christ, covering those sins and the robe of righteousness that he has placed me in. That doesn't happen without the sacrificial, substitutionary atonement of Jesus Christ. Do you, do, you, do you see now what the devil was trying to do to Jesus in the desert? Trying to get him to be a Messiah that didn't mean going through the cross. Brothers and sisters, we're not saved without the cross. We're not saved. We're not in the presence of God. We have no place prepared for us. We will not spend an eternity with him unless Jesus dies on the cross and God pours his wrath down upon him. So let me leave you with this. I'm sorry, that gets me a little bit worked up. People follow all kinds of formulas today to try to put a spin on the gospel, to try to soften it, to try to wish away hell or the wrath of God at our sin, and more recently saying that Jesus was not uh, killed by his father in the sense that his father knew what he was doing and ordained sovereignly that he would go to the cross. But let me just leave you with this. Whether you are an unbeliever or a believer, if you're an unbeliever, this is your path of salvation. If you are a believer, this should govern your life. It should set the standards of your days. And that is that God is holy. Jesus is the Holy One of God. That which is holy and that which is sinful cannot coexist in the same place. And that it is only through the sacrificial, substitutionary atonement of Jesus Christ that will reconcile you to the Holy One of God. Amen. Let's pray. Our dear Lord, we know that there are so many variations on the gospel right now that are floating around us, but whatever formula people put their faith in, unless it is your son dying on the cross for us, your wrath poured out upon him, that substitution, that sacrifice, that atonement, then we're, we're all lost. Because without that, we cannot understand how we, any more than that demon that possessed that man, that we can be in your presence. Because we also have that same fallen, sinful nature. Praise your holy name for your plan of redemption and how you have brought that to bear and manifested through the love of your son, Jesus Christ.
who died on the cross for me. We give him the glory, and we pray in his name. Amen.